afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst at the uh, Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. I want to thank you for uh, coming to Cato and, I, uh, and, and thank you very much to our two uh, speakers uh, for um, giving us their time and uh, the benefits of their wisdom. Um, we are witnessing the dawn of robotics revolution. In the future, robots uh, will undergo exponential growth in terms of their ability and application. What does that mean for human employment and productivity growth? What about incomes, leisure time, and the overall standard of living? Randy Bateman uh, believes that robotics will lead to a great economic upheaval and realignment of employment and tax policies, on the flip side, he believes that uh, dangerous, dangerous, dirty, and demeaning jobs will be eliminated. Bateman is particularly intrigued by the potential of exploring and exploiting the two-thirds of the globe that is covered by water. Aside from fishing and oil drilling, the seas have been a little mined for potential existing and possibly unknown elements or solution to mankind's problems. The continent of, of Antarctica in landmass, for example, is greater than that of Europe. It could become a virtual new world whose resources have never been totally identified or tapped. Uh, the advent of robotics to undertake these tasks uh, that are unimaginable to be performed by humans uh, represents a quantum leap forward that has been little discussed by corporate educational or media sources. Adam Kuyper also believes that robotics revolution will lead to massive economic realignment, but wonders about subsequent public support for capitalism and increasing demands for guaranteed minimum income or basic income. He wonders about the future of meaningful work and how that relates to our self-understanding. What will a diminishment in work, at first for certain segments of the population and then over the long run, uh, for ever more people mean on how we understand ourselves and what will its effects be on the social fabric. So with that, let me welcome our first speaker. Bruce, or Randy Bateman, is the principal and founder of Balconi's Investment Research. Bateman served as the president and chief investment officer of Huntington Asset Advisors from 2000 to 2015. He managed uh, over 100 investment professionals and its sales force. Huntington ran a series of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds that amounted to just under $5 billion in total assets and trust uh, fiduciary funds uh, exceeding $15 billion. He held similar positions uh, in the First National Bank, Bank of Cincinnati, uh, American National Bank in Austin, and Allied Bank in Houston. Mr. Bateman has over 40 years of experience in uh, managing fiduciary assets uh, on a professional level and holds a chartered financial analyst designation. His education includes an economics degree from North Carolina State University with minor in English. So with that, uh, let me or help me welcome uh, Randy Bateman. Thank you, Marion. I appreciate you uh, letting me speak here today. Um, 
I think uh, I was chosen to come to work here because um, I'd been working with the Institute of Chartered Financial Analysts in developing a, uh, a paper that was associated with the impact of robotics that would be on Fed policy. And as I started to do a lot more research, it became very, very evident that robotics is going to be really a creator of a new uh, revolution in terms of our economy and the way we actually think, work, and act. Um, uh, but uh, as an economist, I'm excited about all these different facets, and we'll get into a number of those. But we all know that the study of the economy is called the dismal science, and it's done so for a very good reason. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, many of you recall when we used to have a Soviet Union, the, the USSR. And every May Day, they used to have a, a parade that distributed or displayed their military might. And there was this one particular May Day. I recall Leonid Brezhnev was the uh, chairman at that point in time. And uh, he was sitting in the reviewing stand. And this went on for hours. And thousands of troops marched through Red Square. Then the tanks rumble through. And then the half tracks. And then finally, the, uh, the missile launchers came through the, uh, the Red Square. And the, uh, the dignitaries were all sitting and watching this display of military prowess. At the end of this display, however, there were three men, pinstripe suits, horn-rimmed glasses, carrying briefcases, arguing with one another behind the, uh, the last of the missile launchers. Chairman Brezhnev turned to the general beside him and said, Comrade General, who are those three men? And the response was, why, Comrade Chairman, those three men are economists. At that point in time, Brezhnev blew up. He said, what are these men doing in my display of military power? And uh, the response was, why, comrade, of all the things you have seen there today, those men are the most dangerous. Turned out to be true, didn't it? You probably caught my accent. I lived in Texas for a long time. We had a uh, president from that state who had an economic policy called guns and butter. You may recall that. Guns were to halt the spread of communism in Southeast Asia and butter was the creation of the great society. And when you think about it, what we were never able to accomplish with guns and halting communism, we did with butter. Our economic system was just that much superior. When Ronald Reagan kicked off his Star Wars initiative, uh, Gorbachev had really no recourse but to capitulate, and he tore down the wall, as President Reagan suggested. But that's enough on the economy. I'd like to really talk about fruit today. Um, we all know what this is. Come on, work with me. <laughs> apple, all right. A lot of historical perspectives in the apple. We all know the Bible, Genesis. God created man and woman. They lived in the Garden of Eden. They frolicked there in their innocence. God came down and spoke to them and said, you may partake of all the fruit of this wonderful garden except the apple. And no sooner than God ascended back into heaven that somebody from the DNC convinced Eve to bite the apple. We all know what happened then. Innocence was lost. Uh, they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. They had to hide their nakedness with figs, fig leaves. And when you think about fig leaves, you think about figs, naturally. And when you think about figs, you naturally think about fig newtons. And then when you think about Fig Newtons, you certainly recall the founder of Fig Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. Right, Adam? <laughs> and uh, uh, we all know what happened with Sir Isaac Newton. He was sitting under the apple tree. And it, oh, there it goes. 
it fell. That gave Newton his first law of motion, which was the postulate of gravity. But something happened when I dropped that, and it'll happen again when I drop this metaphysical experiment. It went down, but it also came back up. And that led Newton to his third law of motion, which is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I'm here to tell you that the laws of physics and the laws of economics are very, very similar. And we try to fight that, but they're always in that case. Uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction in our economy. Um, let me give you an example if I can make this thing work. You'll have to help me if this isn't the case. Um, something happened in 1969 that was germane to this particular discussion, but it served as a tipping point. And that was uh, the Cuyahoga River and Cleveland caught on fire. And uh, we as a society, we decided that we didn't want to have waters that can catch on fire. We wanted to have clean air, and consequently, two years later, uh, Congress passed the Clean Air, Clean Water Act. And we're real good about solving problems. Humankind is very good about that. Not so good, however, about looking at the unintended consequences or those, those rebounds that occur that are unexpected. And so what happened after we uh, saw this clean air and clean water is that unemployment started to rise in the manufacturing sector. Uh, prior to 1969, about a quarter to a third of our population that was employed was employed in the manufacturing arena. After the passage of these very stringent laws, uh, we basically exported manufacturing overseas. And anybody that's Witness the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Olympics in China, in Beijing, uh, and we saw the pollution that occurred there. They made a societal decision as well. Their societal decision was that they wanted to build a middle class, and they did so by really, really exploiting their manufacturing capabilities at the sacrifice of their environment. <laughs> but the unintended consequences is that we manufacturing in this country was shipped offshore. Um, now, the reason why I think this is important uh, is that we are certainly in another tipping point. Yeah, I will. We'll be going to another tipping point, and um, that is that um, I think 2014, we really did see uh, the advent of changes in perception on robotics in this country. Um, the uh, previously, we had looked at robotics, I think, as most people had, as big manufacturing arms that welded things together that took place in uh, pretty much in Detroit, not many places otherwise, but did really do a good job in terms of welding. And you can see from the slide here a lot of the pictorial evidence in that regard. Uh, otherwise, we looked at um, robotics from a Hollywood eye. You may recall. I want your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle, that Arnold said when he was the Terminator. Uh, neither of those two really are very pervasive any longer. But in 2014, we started to see a real change, a real change in perceptions. We, uh, we saw Amazon start to talk a little bit about the, um, the fact that they wanted to deliver goods and services 
uh, via drones. We saw drones in warfare being very successful, where we could have people that are in Utah manning aircraft, or at least designing aircraft and flying them in places in the Middle East, and degree of safety in that regard. We saw the advent of self-driving cars, and this really captured the imagination. We heard Google do this, and then that has been very, very quickly followed up by a consortium of BMW, Ford, uh, and uh, even Apple, again, raised its head in that regard. Um, we even, in my industry, are looking at what are known as robo-advisors. Uh, Vanguard and a number of other big financial institutions are really pushing and focusing on that. But when you think about it, this robotics is happening at a really, really good time in this country's particular future. Uh, we are looking at um, a labor force that is slowing. And we're looking at also a uh, level of productivity that is weaker than we have expected. And if you look at this particular chart, you can see the 10-year moving average is actually starting to go below the trend line that's expected. Well, there's an old economic rule of thumb that you can take the labor force growth rate together with its productivity, and that's the intrinsic growth rate of your economy. Now, sure, there's going to be other... Uh, issues that will uh, change those, but intrinsic growth is really what we're looking at and sustainable, and, and those are a function of labor growth and productivity. And that's, that, that's one of those immutable things up until now. But now we're looking at a whole different paradigm, I think. It's, it's a different situation when we are experiencing a changeover from human labor to mechanical labor. Now we've had really four major economic revolutions uh, in this country. Uh, we had the agricultural revolution, you may recall. Uh, we had an agrarian society from the outset of our country. Uh, and even before that, we had uh, uh, another economist, Malthus, who said that we were gonna starve to death because there hadn't been really any changes much in terms of productivity in the agricultural sector. That certainly did change. Technology will always trump the economic projection. Uh, the second one was the Industrial Revolution. Uh, this occurred in the, uh, the 19th century or so, and we had another famous economist, uh, William Stanley Gervon, a uh, British economist who said we were going to run out of coal, uh, and therefore the steam engines would not be able to perpetuate uh, the expansions that we saw during the Industrial uh, Revolution era. And then third, we have most recently had the dot-com, the computer and the info technology area that has certainly been a revolution. But when you think about each one of those three revolutions, they have generated huge economic booms. They have had great investment alternatives and options that were available as a result of those. And they have all three generated major positives for mankind. Is there any reason to think that the fourth revolution, that of robotics, will be any different? I, I don't know, and I'm not sure we're going to have an answer today, but we're going to try to explore that. Um, a smart economist uh, always looks back in history. And in fact, you may recall Patrick Henry's famous uh, give me liberty or give me, give me death speech. But in there, he also, also said, 
I have but one light by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know no way of judging the future but by the past. And that's what we'd like to do. If you look at this latest, or the industrial revolution that we had, you know, it was prefaced by the steam engine and the use of steam power and other mechanical devices to replace human labor, or at least to supplant it. Um, but when you think about it, look at what other things that were associated with that on the periphery. To have an industrial revolution, you had to have people migrate to the cities, to the plants, and those cities had to be developed. And how do you develop a city, okay? If you can't expand linearly and you have to expand up and down, it's very, very difficult. And it's a new paradigm, new way of thinking. And that led to a whole lot of industries, you know, changes in transportation, uh, changes in building techniques, where you had a city block that could only handle maybe 20 people if it's flat, could handle 1,000 people if it's built up. Word. And the only way that could happen is if you had elevators and you had air conditioning. So the Industrial Revolution itself spawned a whole different way of developing our economy and our nation. It is something that I think is going to happen with regard to robotics as well. We've seen a lot of material on robots. There's hardly a week that goes by. There's not a major piece that comes out on robotics pro or con. Uh, and we, we have to try to develop not only what they're going to do, but what is this infrastructure, the opportunities that infrastructure is going to have for us to be able to develop our mankind and, and develop our employment. Um, now, the robotics revolution is, um, did I go the wrong way? Sorry. Uh, I think there are three things that are going to come to mind. Uh, one of my good friends, Eric Aleas, uh, he's an engineer with Siemens and is a part of the UCF uh, executive uh, board uh, of their uh, engineering department, says that the three things that are going to be most prevalent are jobs that are going to be replaced that are dangerous, dirty, or demeaning. And when you think about the things that, that we have in terms of occupation that are in those three areas alone, it's very, very significant. We've got soldiers that are out there placing their lives at risk. We have policemen. We have firefighters. We have logging, fishing, electrical workers, all of which are in very hazardous uh, occupations. We have dirty jobs, mechanics, agricultural workers, roofers, painters, and particularly here in D.C., we have the politicians. Just had to throw that in. I'm sorry. Uh, we also have demeaning uh, positions. Uh, think about waste disposal. Uh, we have slaughterhouses that have to be manned. We have transportation, people that are driving um, across the country in a truck that's delivering goods uh, across country that is working 12 hours a day. Uh, those are the three areas that I think that will have the most significant and the quickest impact. Now, Disagreeing with uh, Mr. Haleas uh, is the World Economic Forum. Uh, and you may recall they, they met this past winter in Davos, as they, they inevitably do. And they talked about this fourth industrial revolution and the fears that are coming out of that uh, and the concerns that they have. I think they cited that there will be 7 million jobs lost in the uh, next uh, six years, no, excuse me, the next four years and only 2 million that will be recovered as a result of that. 
Uh, and they feel that two-thirds of those lost jobs will be in the office and managerial areas. Certainly, we see a lot of things that will occur. As I was doing this research for the CFA Digest, um, they, uh, it is amazing what now robots can do in terms of surgery, in terms of legal, in terms of composing, in terms of writing. Uh, the Da Vinci surgical uh, equipment is uh, uh, really uh, propelled uh, its uh, parent company uh, to a very, very strong investment performer. So a lot of those things are going to take place. Now, some of the other benefits uh, of this robotics revolution are, are certainly highway deaths. Uh, essentially, there are 92 people that die every single day on our highways. This can perhaps be eliminated as a result of self-driving cars. They can be much more accurate. They won't blink. They won't fall asleep. They'll stay within the speed limits. Uh, those are, are critical issues. Healthcare. Uh, we, uh, we know that um, the Prime Minister of Japan, Abe, uh, indicated that he felt that robots would triple in, in Japan by 2020, and the use of robots in healthcare, because of their aging population and need for healthcare and health maintenance, is going to stimulate that, that growth that will be very exponential in, in Japan. We've seen that $8.5 billion was spent by corporations last year alone on artificial intelligence. Well, that didn't necessarily produce anything, but it did employ people. And we think that those kinds of things will continue as we see this uh, emergence in the robotics arena. The European Commission spends tens of billions of euros every year on technology to, uh, to help the elderly. Agricultural benefits uh, are, are pretty amazing. Uh, there was an article I saw that was in Tech Insider, and that the headlines were, the world's first robot-run farm will harvest 30,000 heads of lettuce a day. Uh, profit margins in corporations. Uh, we think that this is going to be a very, very significant factor and a big force. Uh, Tech Insider again cited that these warehouse robots can boost productivity by 800%. Now, uh, Marion and I were talking earlier about slow growth in this country. And I mentioned the fact that it, it's a function of productivity and labor force growth rate. We have a whole different ballgame when it comes to robots being that level of employment. And so we can maybe look at a more intrinsically higher level of growth, and certainly profit margins to corporations will expand uh, again exponentially. There are environmental aspects that are also very positive. Robots don't need water. They don't produce waste necessarily. They don't absorb nearly as much materials uh, as individuals and people do as they are clothed and housed. Um, so from an environmental perspective, uh, robots can be very positive. Um, the changes that will take place because of, uh, again, uh, highways uh, being more safe, uh, I think changes in insurance will take place there, and torts will certainly decrease as a result of that. We'll see more opportunities for leisure, recreation, and entertainment. Uh, and as Marion indicated, the exploration of the oceans, which represent two-thirds of our uh, entire planet, uh, can be um, exploited much more dramatically. Uh, it's a hostile environment. 
Antarctica is a hostile environment for human beings, but not necessarily so for robotics. And that's going to be critical. Now, this past year, in December actually, there were four new elements added to the periodic tables. Four new elements. And those are all found on land. Uh, think about what will take place if we've got two-thirds of our world that we can more adequately understand. And robotics can help, certainly help that. And that whole, it can really be a boon for mankind all the way around. Uh, we will also experience lower prices uh, for goods and services, I think. Much like Walmart did with cheap labor, and they could bring down prices so dramatically, obviously most every corporation that produces something or has a service can also bring down prices. So let's look at some of the negative consequences. Certainly, uh, Adam will uh, enumerate a number of others that I'm sure will be on his place, but um, labor unions obviously will, I think, collapse as a result of this. Minimum wage that we're so, push, so pushing so hard now will just accelerate the trend towards robotics. Uh, gender equality issues, like uh, the one that was recently uh, passed in California, uh, that also will push more use of robotics across our country. Uh, those are negative consequences, I think, and they're going to be present there, things we have to be aware of and prepare for. Social Security. Obviously, uh, we know that Social Security is teetering on the brink now because we now have more people that are drawing than are contributing. Uh, if we have significant levels of unemployment as a result of that, uh, that will further exacerbate the problem with regard to Social Security. Medicare will even be worse. Big, big problems with both those major finances of our government. Our obligations will uh, become hard to uh, accommodate. Uh, and then finally, tax policies are going to have to change. Uh, I'm a pretty conservative individual, uh, and I would normally say that we need to cut back taxes uh, on corporations in particular because of the tax levels. But I think we're going to see a period because of increased profit margins uh, by corporations where we will have to tax them more. You can't tax a robot. He doesn't make income. You can't tax his house. Uh, and get property taxes. He doesn't do that. He's not going to pay taxes at Starbucks when he buys his cup of coffee because he doesn't need a cup of coffee. We will have to find new ways of generating revenue for our government in order to accommodate this major, major shift in our economy. As an economist, um, obviously, I like to look at the challenges that are out there. And certainly, the greatest of challenges that I see uh, that we're going to have to accommodate is uh, you always hear economists talk about equilibrium, supply, demand, this, that, and the other, where X crosses Y and this, that, and the other, IS and LM curves intersect. Uh, but there is going to be a definite thought that has to be put into the fact that there will be an equilibrium point where consumption of robots or the products that they produce are going to be inconsistent with the level of unemployment that is out there. People are not going to be able to buy those products if they don't have income. Uh, people are not going to be able to buy a robot to make their leisure time more palatable if they can't afford that robot. So those are factors that uh, will have to happen, and smarter economists than I will come up with some way of being able to determine this equilibrium point at which there's an intersect. 
there could be a situation where advances in robotics are so rapid that the employment shifts that typically occur as we have these uh, revolutions uh, are not quick enough to avoid social conflict. Uh, we can't train people to change fast enough. We are having major, major efforts taking place in the sciences, engineering, technology, and math areas, and they're pushing that very hard, uh, but uh, it will, it's not happening fast enough, and we will have problems with uh, reallocating the resources that are human. Uh, and then third, um, we'll have a lot of government changes. Tax policy's got to change. Uh, AI develops such that Drones might become autonomous, and that's a big fear that's out there, particularly when it comes to warfare. Uh, we just saw the president of Syria gas his people, despite the fact that we have treaties that really focus on no biological or chemical warfare, uh, but those treaties can put, be put asunder. Uh, so government is going to have to really step into the case, um, and, and that's a fear. Uh, I'm a lot older than most of you. But I remembered very distinctly when we were crossing the Delaware, George turned to me and said, government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is a force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Never for a moment should it be left to irresponsible action. We have to make sure that our governments recognize these challenges and prepare for them. With that. to end on this slide. Which one was it? I'd like the, the, the last slide. This one. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Thanks, Randy, for a fascinating talk. Um, our next speaker is Adam Kuyper, who is the editor of uh, The New Atlantis, a quarterly journal founded in uh, 2003. Uh, which focuses on the ethical and political dimensions of modern science and technology. He's also the editor of the New Atlantis book series and the editor of the web magazine Big Questions Online. He's a fellow at the Ethics and uh, Public Policy Center. He's also a contributing editor to National Affairs, uh, and he writes on bioethics, science policy, and emerging technologies. Adam, welcome. Thank you very much, Marion. Uh, thank you to Cato. And uh, thank you, Randy, also, for uh, that, that excellent and stimulating presentation. Uh, I, uh, I'm a last-minute substitute for my colleague, Christine Rosen, who was originally supposed to be here, so uh, she had to pull out. So while I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm disappointed on behalf of those of you who, who wanted to see her, as I did, uh, uh, do what she does so well, uh, uh, puncture some of the, uh, uh, the, the mistaken beliefs of uh, some of the techno-utopians out there. I would have enjoyed seeing it myself, but uh, uh, I hope I can provide a little bit of uh, what she might have been able to bring. Uh, I did not have the time to prepare a pretty PowerPoint presentation I had hoped to, but you could just imagine, or maybe go home and Google later, uh, pictures of unemployed robots. Uh, which was my original plan, just these very depressed-looking kind of Great Depression-era robots, just kind of 
you know, will beep for food, that sort of thing. Um, in, in, in my talk, I'll say a few things that are um, a little bit responsive to Randy's presentation. Uh, I think mostly complementary to, to Randy's presentation. Uh, but uh, much of what I'll say will be, will be separate and can be understood on its own. I'm going to say a little bit about some of the, the difficulties that are just inherent in having any kinds of conversations like this one. Then I'm going to try to quickly lay out uh, some of the employment changes that we can reasonably expect as we look forward into the, into the, the, the next few years of uh, automation and robotics. And my, my description will differ in some ways from, from Randy's. Uh, and then I'll, I'll focus on some of, some of the ramifications of these kinds of changes, including some of the risks and some of the problem scenarios that we can reasonably expect in the short to midterm. So let me start with uh, just a few words about, uh, uh, about why it's so hard in some ways to talk about these things. As the great technologist Yogi Berra famously said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, now, since the early 1960s, when robots were first used in American automation, I think 1961 is when GM first, uh, first started using robots, economists and policymakers have been speculating with various degrees of worry about the implications uh, of employment, for employment of automation, which they took to mean not just not just mechanical automation, not just robots, but the cognitive aspects uh, of automation as well, what we would all now recognize as uh, the computer revolution of the last few decades. In the very first issue of the Public Interest, the, the neoconservative magazine founded in 1965, future Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan could already say in 1965 that automation had been the cause for, quote, a good number of neo-apocalyptic views of the future of the American economy. That's 1965. Already in that first issue, there were two essays on the great automation question, which sounds a little hokey today. You may wonder what the great automation question was. It was basically two questions rolled into one. Part, partly they were asking, where does human meaning come from? Uh, if we don't work, and partly they were asking, what will we do with all of our free time? How will we fill all of the leisure time that we're all going to have, thanks to robots? The great automation question. President Johnson had founded a, a, a national commission on technology, automation, and economic progress. Scholars of various stripes were thinking more and more about futurism as a discrete activity, a discrete discipline. Uh, in some cases, even proposing methodologies for how to think about and predict the future and uh, try to more accurate, accurately gauge what's, uh, what's going to come down the road. And yet, here's the thing. When you look at this literature, most of this speculation about the dreadful effects of automation or the liberating effects of automation, most of that speculation turned out to be pretty off base. The kinds of things that they got wrong would make for an interesting and a complicated discussion in its own right. But for now, I just want to draw out a few very, very small lessons that apply to this conversation here today and to most of what you'll read in newspapers and magazines about robotics in the next few years. So for one thing, there's the problem of mismatched time frames. 
Some analysts, like, like Randy in his presentation, focus on the near or the, the middle term, you might say, while others focus on more distant possibilities. And these different timescales result in conversations where the interlocutors are just talking past one another. So when, when you've got one person, like Randy, making a very reasonable presentation about driverless cars and employment and jobs, and then you've got somebody who else who comes along and says, well, we're talking about super intelligent artificial intelligences that are uh, going to risk wiping out the human race, yeah, you're having a conversation that is not really on the same page. So time frames matter. This is one reason why in conversations like this, it's very helpful to narrow the conversation to a specific scenario or even on to focus on some work of fiction so that everybody's bringing their analysis to bear on the same thing, more or less. There's also the problem of context. Too often in conversations like this, people leave out cultural effects, social effects, or for that matter, other emerging technologies, right? It's one thing to talk about robotics kind of in a vacuum, but how does it relate to nanotechnology, to advances in genomics, to other breakthroughs in biotechnology, or mind-machine interfaces, things like that? It's hard to really figure out how to separate these things. All of which is to say, as you listen to what we talk about today, as you ask questions later, as you read other things, as you read futurist literature generally, it's important to keep in mind what I call a chain of uncertainties. Just because something can be imagined, just because something is conceivable, doesn't mean that it's possible. Too often we make the leap from assuming that something is, just because we can conceive of something, that it's possible. Just because something is possible doesn't actually mean it's going to happen. Even if it happens, it may not happen in anything like the way that you imagined. And even if it does happen in something like the way you imagined, it may still have all sorts of unintended, unexpected consequences. So keep in mind that chain of uncertainties, as I say a few things now about robotics and AI, and try to give you a sense of where I think the conventional wisdom is that scholars and policymakers have been playing around with right now. There are, in general, maybe six broad generalizations, I'll suggest, and two areas of real uncertainty when people talk about uh, robotics and AI in the short and middle term. Generalization number one this is an easy one. Robot use is increasing. Shipments of industrial robots have doubled in the past five years. And the number of robot-related patents and the percentage of overall, the percentage of robot-related patents in the overall body of patents has risen markedly. So robots, they're coming. Generalization number two, also a very obvious one. The United States is near the forefront of the roboticization of industry in particular. We're not at the very front. If you go by the metric of uh, robot to human worker ratio, uh, Japan and Germany are ahead of us, whereas China, with its much lower uh, labor costs, is far behind us. But we are near the front. Generalization number three. People generally agree on this. Robots can be used either to replace or to complement human labor. And in the decades ahead, you'll see lots of both happening. Again, fairly easy generalization. Generalization number four. It's not just the dirty jobs, the low-skilled jobs, the dangerous jobs that are going to be replaced. In fact, most of the analysts, the economists who've looked at this, say that the jobs that are being most replaced are the middle-skilled jobs. Clerks, accountants, bookkeepers, assembly line workers. Those jobs have long been prone to automation. They're still prone to automation today. Increasingly, 
you'll see automation robotics moving into the low-skilled and high-skilled jobs as well. Low-skilled jobs had generally been protected because they require some degree of adaptability and interpersonal relations. High-skilled jobs tended to require some degree of creativity. But as machines become more, as machines, as, let me put it this way, as more creativity and intelligence is instantiated in machines, uh, you'll see greater machine encroachment on the low-skilled and the high-skilled ends of the spectrum. Uh, I should add, by the way, that in some ways, on low-skilled workers, this puts similar pressures, and I think this is something each of you alluded to, this puts similar pressures on low-skilled workers, uh, as you'll see put on them by immigration or by competition against uh, uh, laborers in foreign countries. It's very similar sort of labor pressures, which, which makes it a little ironic that the Obama administration in its economic report released a few weeks ago uh, on the one hand, it spent several pages worrying about the effects of automation on, on uh, employment in the country. And on the other hand, it also called for raising the minimum wage, as if it just didn't see that there's some kind of tension there. Generalization number five. In some settings, there may be new kinds of jobs for human beings to tend to our increasingly intelligent machines, or otherwise to keep human decision-making in the loop. But it's generally agreed that the number of such machine-tending jobs will be, greatly, will be much smaller than the number of jobs eliminated. It's a bit of conventional wisdom, but worth, worth saying just another word about. To use an example that, that we're talking about here, a lot of, I mean, most of us have heard a lot about the driverless cars, the, the use of driverless trucking in the not-too-distant future. According to BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's 1.7 million people in this country who drive heavy trucks, and there's another 800,000 people who drive light trucks, and there's uh, 180,000 taxi drivers and chauffeurs in this country. It's very likely that a very large percentage of those jobs will go away in the next, say, 20 or 30 years. Some new jobs may arise for specialized mechanics and repair uh, 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 specialists for these vehicles, but yeah, you, could, you can't really imagine how the number of new jobs to, to fix these new vehicles will be at all comparable to the kinds of or number of jobs that are done away with. And finally, generalization number six, more and more the middle skill area, the middle income area of jobs, those are the kinds of jobs most likely to be affected by automation, including we see now in the service sectors. So in the old days, while we might have thought of automation uh, replacing manufacturing jobs, uh, and keep in mind nowadays manufacturing is only something like 9% of the entire US workforce, looking ahead, it's not just manufacturing, but we're talking about and warehouses and trucking, but we're talking about even things like restaurant wait staff or uh, hotel personnel or certain kinds of medical professionals. Uh, firefighters and police to talk about some dangerous jobs. So for the sake of discussion, if you were to make some aggressive assumptions and say that 80% of truck drivers lose their jobs and maybe a lot of, I don't know, to, to use some of the other professions that are often talked about, janitors and housekeepers and groundskeepers of various kinds lose their jobs. You could imagine a scenario, if you make some realistic but aggressive assumptions, a scenario where, say, 25% of the jobs that exist today won't exist in 20, 25, 30 years. That, just to put that in context, 25% is about the unemployment rate during the Great Depression. 
Which brings us to the first of two uncertainties I'll lay out. Most analysts agree that new jobs are going to be created, but by definition, it's impossible to really figure out these things and speak about them intelligibly. We can, many optimists hold it as a kind of matter of faith that just as previous technological revolutions have led to new kinds of jobs, especially if human creativity is not shackled, that we'll see the same thing happen in the new age of you know, robotic uh, 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 workers, of uh, all kinds of rippling artificial intelligence. We'll see the same sort of thing, new kinds of jobs, entire new fields created. That's, that's uh, uh, an article of faith, though, that's dependent on the old model in which uh, the machines that were taking jobs were dumb machines. If we're talking about a future in which the machines are increasingly intelligent, then that article of faith becomes harder to believe. Uncertainty number two, the disruptive effects of job replacement depend heavily on the timetables. But nobody has a good sense of what the timetables are going to be. So to return to that trucking example, right, if all those two and a half million jobs were to disappear tomorrow. If you waved a magic wand and replaced all those two and a half million trucking jobs with driverless vehicles tomorrow, you know, Optimus Prime and the Autobots come down and they say, we'll take all these jobs for you. That would be obviously hugely disruptive. But if we're talking about this unfolding over the course of two or three decades, there's a period of adjustment as parents can help educate their children, people can, uh, adults can educate themselves, people can think differently about work and retirement, where, uh, where the, the disruptive consequences would be far less painful. So there's a lot more that we could say here about legal theories and insurance, and Randy, Randy dealt admirably with much of this. Um, one interesting area of speculation that we don't really have time to get into uh, is what kinds of jobs might, uh, might be most immune to replacement from automation. I think, interestingly, I think you could argue that, that for at least the next several decades, the, the trades, by which I don't mean artisans and craftsmen, although them too, but, but really I mean electricians and plumbers and roofers and carpenters, the skilled lines of making and repairing, you could argue that those sorts of jobs, the kinds of jobs that uh, Matthew Crawford extolled for their cognitive aspects in his, in his book Be uh, Shop Class as Soulcraft, those kinds of jobs I think would be surprisingly resilient to the effects of automation. There are all sorts of ideas that have been put forward, Randy alluded to some of them, uh, to address the difficulties associated with robotics and employment. Uh, the White House, in the report that I mentioned earlier, uh, called for strengthening labor unions. Some analysts have called for rethinking education, whatever that means, I, rethinking education. Uh, and uh, there, there have been calls for the creation of a new Federal Robotics Commission, which I imagine here in the halls of the Cato Institute would send a shiver down some spines. Uh, but to be honest, much of that is very mild compared to some of what's being discussed. Here's a line of argument that you see a lot in the literature, and Randy alluded to it. Uh, it, it this, I, I don't buy this, or at least I don't buy it in, in its entirety, but you see this a lot. So first, the changes that are afoot in robotics and AI and in other emerging fields like, uh, like uh, molecular manufacturing, which is the kind of the futuristic nanotech version of 3D printing, right? Some of these changes uh, will result in an age of radical abundance, to borrow Eric Drexler's phrase for this. But this age of radical abundance will be accompanied by a radical shift in the relationship between labor and capital. The high productivity that they talk about in this 
future scenario, will require a lot less labor, thanks to automation, but a lot more capital investment because of the expenses that are involved in setting up uh, robots and automation, which would mean a great increase in inequality as the share of world GDP attributable to those who, to pick a phrase out of thin air, own the means of production, could rise up and uh, uh, up and up and up while the, the share of GDP that's attributable to those who, um, to use yet another phrase I'm picking out of thin air, we could call the workers of the world, would go down and down and down. And so in a situation like that, you often see it argued, uh, maybe the solution is a guaranteed basic income. This is going to be a huge dispute in the years ahead. I think we have every reason to expect folks on the left especially, uh, who've already over the past year and a half been pushing for it, and some folks on the right to really be pushing to either greatly expand the social safety nets that are already in place in order to transform them into something like a basic income, or maybe some other more radical, dare we say, revolutionary approach uh, to doing the same thing. I want to I step away now from the kind of th that, that kind of theoretical challenge to capitalism to instead return just to employment and the question of jobs. You might ask, why should we, why should we care so much about employment? Why should we f worry so much about jobs, right? Isn't, shouldn't the goal of the future be, as Arthur C. Clarke put it, not worrying about full employment, but shouldn't we be shooting for full unemployment? I mean, isn't that what we want? Why should we have to work? This question raises, in turn, deep questions about who and what we are as human beings and the ways in which we find purpose and meaning in our lives. A full discussion would require maybe doing a little bit of phenomenology or some kind of really deep literary and historical discussion, but for the sake of expediency here, I just want to point out two competing visions of the future as we think about work. Because even though science fiction offers us many different visions of the future, in which humanity is destroyed by robots, or in which we merge with robots and all become cyborgs, or uh, you know, maybe, we, uh, maybe we find some other way of destructing, destroying humanity, uh, there's really only two visions of the future in which humanity, recognizably humanity, coexists with super intelligent machines. And each of these visions has in it an implicit anthropology, an understanding of what it means to be a human being. The first vision is the, the kind of utopian or techno-optimist vision. Uh, in that vision, you know, humanity kind of takes a, a, a seat in the lotus position at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we, we think about uh, self-actualization and inner peace and thanks to all the, the labor and intelligence of our robots, we're free to pursue whatever hobbies we want. We all become poets. We all write our long, struggled-over novels and screenplays. Right? The answer, in other words, to that great automation question from the 1960s is we all become gardeners. It's kind of like, um, uh, if you remember the famous line from John Adams from 1780, writing to Abigail, uh, I'm, I must study politics and war so that our sons, sons can study uh, mathematics and philosophy. 
uh, and they study math and philosophy and geography and the rest so that their children can study painting and poetry and music and architecture and tapestry and porcelain and basket weaving and who knows what else. So this is a dream that you see in a lot of movies and a lot of stories and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a version of the future in which we're all free to become dreamers and thinkers and lovers. But then there's the other vision in which we, instead of climbing to the top of Maslow's pyramid, we, we settle down on the bottom and take a nap. Right? This is the future vision of Wally, in which, uh, and many other stories and movies, a future in which humanity, we all become Homer Simpson. Right? It's a leisure society of consumption and entertainment and endomorphic excess. The culminating achievement of human ingenuity in this vision is robotic beings that are smarter than us, stronger than us, better than us, and it turns us into dumber, weaker, worse versions of ourselves. TV watching, video game playing blobs who lose the energy and attention required even to be proper hedonists. Freed from the, the struggle for basic needs, we lose a genuine impulse to strive. and We lose our interest in civic and political and intellectual and romantic and spiritual ambition. Personally, I don't think either of these visions is right. I think each vision, the one in which we become more like gods and the one in which we become more like beasts, I think each of these is a kind of deformation. I think there's a, a good reason to challenge some of the technical claims and some of the aspirations of the AI crowd. And I think in important respects, we are stuck with human nature, that we're simultaneously beings of base wants and transcendent aspirations, that we're finite, but able to conceive of the infinite, and that we are paradoxically destined to be free. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Adam. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I, uh, before this forum, I really didn't know which way it was going to go, but I think that we had uh, two very, very interesting uh, contributions uh, that hopefully will, will, will lead to some interesting questions. But before I turn it over to Q&A, is there anything that you want to uh, immediately react to or, uh, or not? A couple of things that Adam said, I think one was, uh, I think, pretty evident is the fact that there will not be uh, equality across the world in terms of robotics. Um, uh, we are at the forefront in the United States. Japan is, is maybe a little bit ahead of us, um, uh, but we are, are very much ahead. Now, what's happened, I think, is that a number of the countries, as you know, um, our share of world GDP has declined uh, as the rest of the world has expanded. Uh, and um, the developing nations uh, are the ones that have really carried the ball in terms of world GDP growth. Uh, they've used their demographics to their advantage. But in the age of robotics, the demographics that they had as a favorable to them are going to turn into a disadvantage. They're going to have excess populations that won't have things to do, won't have widgets to create like they're creating them now. So um, I think Adam and I both recognize that's a, that's a big, big factor that's out there. Another thing that, that he mentioned uh, in, the, in his summary 
which I think is also very important that perhaps uh, separates us from the animals. And Mary and I discussed it a little bit earlier as well, is um, uh, what does make us human and, and why do we do what we do? Uh, why do some people work hard, very, very hard with little pay, uh, but they do it for pride or other reasons? Uh, and, and I hate to keep, keep quoting our, our founders, uh, but Thomas Paine, back during the revolution, said, what you obtain too easily, you esteem too lightly. Tis dearness alone that gives everything its value. And I think that's something we all need to think about is how do we really, really uh, appreciate items and how do we appreciate ourselves? Uh, and I think it's by hard work and having uh, uh, some degree of exposure to everything that we do uh, and control over whatever we do that is going to be uh, very important going forward, even more so than it ever, ever has in the past. So that would be a couple of things. Yeah, I guess I'd just add two little points. First, uh, uh, although there's a great deal to love about Tom Paine, whom you just mentioned, it's uh, in this context, it's maybe interesting to, to point out that Tom Paine was one of these early, maybe among the earliest advocates for a, a universal guaranteed basic income, which... Uh, I, I expect we'll see his name uh, trotted out uh, in support of that idea more and more in the years ahead as it becomes more an issue that we talk about. It's, it's something that we're going to have to deal with, and I think conservatives and libertarians will have to think carefully about um, how they want to respond to the push for it. Um, and then a kind of just one, one larger point, if I can step back. So, you know, th there's a lot of I guess I'd put it this way. Look, Marion, your project is, uh, is a project focused on human progress. Uh, and in inherent, I think, in, in kind of that rubric uh, is an understanding that uh, when you unleash human creative potential, uh, which often means in the realms of science and technology, you're contributing to uh, the improvement of the condition of mankind. And there has been wonderful, ample, ample evidence for that, for the, for the, the truth of that, uh, since the origins of modernity, some uh, uh, some four or five centuries ago. But I think you could argue that there are important ways, looking forward, uh, in which uh, liberty and the advancement of technology are actually a tension with one another. Uh, which is to say, you could, uh, look, Francis Bacon, one of the founders of modern science, talked about science and technology uh, aiding in the relief of man's estate. That's a wonderful, I mean, it's a wonderful, liberating thing. You can see how science and technology and liberty, kind of the advance of liberty, kind of grew together and went hand in hand. There's what the sociologists call an, an elective affinity between the two. But when you look at certain areas of emerging technology that allow, say, unprecedented new technological kinds of surveillance that uh, reduce the individual's sphere of privacy, or new technologies, uh, new algorithmic deployments that uh, reduce the individual's freedom of action, or new biotechnologies, uh, new genetic engineering technologies that allow one generation to uh, have unprecedented kinds of controls over the next, uh, and in this area that we're talking about today, robotics and artificial intelligence, you're talking about, some people are talking about um, 
you know, advances that uh, fundamentally lead to the extinction of humanity, the replacement of human, human, human beings with post-human beings. Uh, at that point, I think you see a breakdown in our conception of what human liberty becomes. And I think we need to think seriously and think deeply about the new arising tensions between the old friends of technology and liberty. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do what, what comes very hard to a, uh, to a policy analyst. Um, I'm going to claim ignorance. I have, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I uh, put this panel together precisely because these are the sorts of issues that, uh, that I do think about. And um, um, like, uh, like so many other people, my, my, my thinking about the future is split between uh, a great degree of optimism about the extraordinary things that we are seeing, for example, in medical advances, CRISPR-Cas9 um, uh, uh, genetic, uh, genetic advances, the ability to uh, destroy cancer and HIV AIDS and uh, all sorts of other things. We are able to look at, uh, we are able to take a virus that we didn't know existed two weeks ago, break down its genetic code and figure out a way to kill it. I mean, these are extraordinary things um, and, and uh, should have a very positive effect on, on the core of what I would consider human progress, life expectancy, health, um, um, availability of food and so forth. Uh, but then you come into questions such as you, you, you discussed, uh, surveillance, um, empowerment of people who want to do us and our species harm um, by being able to use the same technology in order to um, create harmful substances and so forth, and suddenly um, things become much darker. So it is precisely through forums like these that I hope we can, uh, we can explore um, these issues further. Um, with that, let me open it to Q&A. I would like to ask you to please wait until the mic gets to you. Uh, and then if you would please state your name and uh, kindly form your question in a form of a question uh, and make it a very short one so that others can, uh, can, can have the same um, uh, time as well. Yes, sir. Hi, Rob Levinson from Bloomberg Government. A question, we, we talk about all this potential displacement of, of employment, of jobs. Um, we've been doing this for, for a while already with robots and things. I'm just curious, can either of you, you didn't cite a lot of data of an industry or a place or a group of people who have been displaced. Uh, you know, uh, you're in the financial industry, you know, I can program a computer to manage a mutual fund that will probably beat two-thirds of the mutual fund analysts. Yet as far as I know, there's not a great you know, dearth of mutual fund analyst jobs out there. They haven't disappeared. I'm just curious, where are the sectors where we're seeing this impact that you're sort of extrapolating to great degrees out in the future? Thanks. How many travel agents do you know? I mean, there are technological advancement... No, but it, it, when we're talking, when we're looking forward, uh, we have to speculate about these things. And if you if if you listen to some of the the more, depending on how you look at it, optimistic or pessimistic, if you look at some of the estimates that are out there, uh, you'll see you know, twenty five, thirty, forty, fifty percent of the jobs that exist today are going to be replaced by machines. It's you know, there's, there are estimates that run the gamut. I printed out before coming over 
the, um, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics rundown of all of the major job categories in the United States, all the major areas of employment. And looking at it, you know, it's hard to see how some of these some of these occupational areas will be replaced in the next, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years, not, not in their entirety. But it's easy to see, if you think creatively, some ways they may be replaced. So education, training, and library occupations account for 8.5 million jobs in this country, right? Well, we're not going to get rid of all of our teachers in the next 10 years. That does not seem likely to me. But we are going to see, surely... Uh, real transformation in education and in higher education, we're already starting to see it, whether you're looking at the Khan Academy or some of the experiments that have been going on with different ways of, uh, of, uh, of sending uni- college and university education to wider audiences. We're going to see transformation. What it's going to look like, I don't think either Randy or I are really qualified to say, but we're going to see shifts in these numbers as a result of automation uh, changes in communication technology, uh, and to some extent, yeah, robotics as well. It's there, there is one report that I uh, will cite real quickly. It's coming from the New York Post, so you take it as it is. Um, it said a new study suggested an estimated 10 million prospective finance jobs have been lost since 2000 and countless billions of capital not created due to the proliferation of robotic trading platforms. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's hit my industry, obviously, uh, in fairly significant form. I, uh, I deal with TD Ameritrade, and, <laughs> and I don't talk to a human being uh, as a result of that. But um, it, it is, I think, something that, as I indicated, I think the tipping point was really 2014. And I think that's where we really started to uh, look at the different alternatives and options. And and I think it's been happening all along. I think people that uh, are, um, you know, in the service sector are are now becoming more more, uh, uh, vulnerable uh, to this. Uh, But we've we've seen it in automated uh, telephone answering devices and uh, uh, robotics that uh, will respond to your help desk uh, needs uh, on a computer, uh, give you your your checking account balance and those types of things in in the white collar arena. Uh, But, um, you know, it's going to become very significant in the fact in terms of of our ability to satisfy needs. Uh, The healthcare needs are going to be enormous in this country and in Japan, particularly where we've got these aging demographic forces out there and just the the help that uh, the elderly are going to need. I think it's going to spawn that. uh, And I don't think that we've got the human capacity to actually fill those needs. So I think robotics are going to be a real positive in that regard. But there certainly have been replacing jobs all around. And, and in my industry in particular. And, and just to piggyback on that, in finance, and I'm going to guess, Rob, that you probably also know a great deal about this. This is, you know, the probably the most prominent use of automation over the last 20 years in finance has been uh, the, the use of automated, of algorithms for uh, very rapid trades, which is not replacing human beings, but uh, you know, doing things at a speed with a kind of rapidity that human beings can't do, with consequences that we're in some ways still just grappling with and trying to understand for finance and for the economy at large. Yeah, five years ago, you could walk on the New York Stock Exchange floor and get trampled to death in many cases. Now it's, it's hard to find anybody there. It's not in the media. Kramer will be there.
You had a question? Well, to some extent, the, uh, the gentleman from Bloomberg uh, asked my question. Um, my name is Aran Carmel. I'm from American University from the Kogat School of Business. So we talked about the, the, uh, the office. How will the office change in the next 10 to 20 years? And, and to some extent, you've, you've just answered that. Um, so, so, but you said that you talked about job replacement, but, but let me uh, frame it in a different way. How will our interaction in the office change as a result of robotics or other ty types of technology. We still get in the car and we drive to K Street or wherever and we, we work very much like people in Mad Men worked half a century ago. Randy, you want to take that? <laughs> I was afraid you were going to say that. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I would propose that um, looking throughout my career at the people's jobs that have changed, that do what I do or have done what I have done, uh, there has been a dramatic decrease in their need simply because of things like Bloomberg. Uh, what We used to take an analyst that would crank out numbers and get them on a spreadsheet and, and work for hours at night uh, to come up with an answer, you can get on Bloomberg in 15 seconds and have the same answer. So um, whether you consider Bloomberg a robot or not, it is a part of this, this intelligence and communication and uh, algorithmic efforts that, uh, that Adam alluded to. I'm not sure that answers your question. I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Adam. But I, sure. So, I mean, there have been lots of visions over the last 30 years of how office work is going to be transformed. Do you remember the paperless office and the future where we're all going to work from home, right? What was it called? Teleworking or something? Tele I mean, that's, that word reeks of 1985, teleworking. Uh, but uh, I, I guess I'd have to say I really disagree with the premise of your question that things look a lot like the Mad Men era in terms of how our offices function today. I mean, yes, we do uh, get up and get in our car, and they're not driverless yet, uh, or get on the subway or the bus and go into an office, but where are all of the secretaries of Mad Men? We are all our own secretaries. And the human factor of that, which I think is evident from the very first episode of Mad Men all the way to the end, the, the way that the, the social dynamics, uh, and for that matter, the kind of sexual and political dynamics of the office described in Mad Men, I mean, that's a very different situation. Uh, you know, and it, it's not just in uh, the offices of the sort that you might think of uh, here in D.C. or in New York. I mean, you, you go around the Pentagon and there are, there are generals who, you know, are typing their own emails now with their two fingers. And it's just a thing that 15, 20 years ago would in some ways have been just unthinkable. And now it's completely routine. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the, I, to, to, to really answer your question and kind of point this not at the past but toward the future, um, I guess I'll have to, to resort to the same kind of uh, uh, answer I've been giving uh, along here. Uh, look, it's, it's hard to know the future. It's hard to, to, to speculate, but uh, uh, we can be sure that it will continue to change. <laughs> We're familiar with Moore's Law with regard to semiconductors and prices and this, that, and the other, and that's kind of being put on the shelf right now. But I think you can, you can say that there's going to be a similar situation with regard to robotics. I think it's going to geometrically increase, and it's going to become more visible. I think, like I say, up until 2014, our perceptions of robots was either Hollywood's or these big arms that make big stuff. 
Uh, and now we've got robots that automatically can clean your pool, they can vacuum your floor, uh, they can do a lot of the chores that we once did, and uh, that's going to just progress, I think. You know, just like computers did. I mean, we, we talked about my Apple. Um, those guys started uh, out of a uh, garage um, and created Apple. And, uh, and no telling what new uh, genius is sitting in a garage right now developing some type of um, uh, new platform, new program, new capability uh, that, um, uh, that we would have in terms of, of robotics. More questions? Well, let's take it on that side. Lady. Thank you. Um, I'm Emily, and um, I work on labor and social protection issues in developing countries at the World Bank. So I have a question um, regarding how the uh, robotics revolution might have, might take a heavier toll on developing countries and the poor population. Um, so when we talk about job cre uh, job destruction caused by robotics, it seems to be a good thing because these jobs that are eliminated are usually dangerous, redundant, or low skill. Uh, but it has different, Im I guess, implications in developing countries. So for instance, in Philippines, uh, a lot of the call centers um, employ um, a big share of the population that are really poor or low skill or vulnerable, um, more likely to be female. And these jobs are more and more being automated. So those who benefit are the firms that are based in the in Western countries, in developed countries, uh, by increasing their productivity, while those who suffer uh, might are more likely to be in the developing countries. And a lot of the times, um, the governments in these developing countries are taking measures deliberately to slow down the, the technological adoption. So I'm curious about your take on that. Would you agree that it, it's, a, it's a good thing? I I'm, you know, personally think it's going to be a very much of a uh, negative for the um, the emerging nations, let's say, you know, the BRICS and the other emerging nations that uh, now represent or did represent over 50% of the world GDP, um, I think are going to have a tougher time. I think that the developed nations uh, are going to uh, rely much more upon robotics to rebuild our manufacturing. As I indicated, only 9% of our population is involved in, in manufacturing anymore, where it was 25% 30 years ago. Um, it, by replacing the human element with robotics in the developed nations is going to, I think, have a devastating impact on uh, the, the emerging countries. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult. They've got a demographic advantage now, uh, but th that will turn into a demographic disadvantage very significantly. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I would just say I would only add that it's complicated uh, by um, a number of political factors, uh, and those are political factors that are familiar to, to anybody who's studied these issues. Uh, and also, um, you know, many of the, the more fundamental challenges uh, in a lot of developing nations need to be addressed, not just political ones, uh, and it's complicated to see how they relate to um, to the questions that we're talking about here. I mean, when you're talking about matters related to uh, food and health and sanitation and medicine, um, 
you know, the relationship between uh, high-level automation or automation that's replacing not just manufacturing jobs, but some of these uh, mid- and high-skilled jobs, it's really complicated to see how that will play out. Um, I suppose it will be exacerbated partly by, uh, I mean, we talked about demographic pressures, but what we're really talking about is total fertility rate. Uh, by 2050, there will be more Nigerians than there are Americans. And uh, if, if you are looking at the population of Africa, for example, still expanding at a twice the rate than, uh, than, uh, than uh, uh, other countries, uh, Latin America, United States, uh, certainly much more than Europe, uh, are these people simply going to remain um, in, in the developing countries um, watching on their laptops um, the extraordinary level of prosperity in the West, or are they going to try to... Um, Go for it, yeah. and I, I just I, I have no idea what the uh, what those immigration flows are going to look like. Um, um, I mean, we, I, I suppose we are having a taste of it looking at Europe right now. In some ways, yeah. I mean, fertility is obviously itself an enormously complicated question that's connected in a range of ways to other aspects of technology. That's that's certainly true, um, you know. But it touches on uh, some of what I I got. To at, at the, in the conclusion of my remarks, um, you know, fertility rate, uh, the, the total fertility rate uh, seems to be connected in a deep, in a very profound way to different people's self-conception, uh, to how the people of a given nation understand themselves and their future and think about it. It's not just a matter of technology. It's an understanding of the relationship between the generations, for instance. Uh, and that is something that is connected to the availability of meaningful work, uh, the, uh, the availability of work that you can look at and say, this is something that um, gives me a sense of purpose and a sense of fulfillment. Uh, so I don't mean to imply that there's any kind of simple connection. It's very complicated, um, but it's something worth thinking more about. Gentleman in the front, and then we'll get to you. Uh, thank you, Nick Farmer. You've talked a lot about robotics. Could you address a little bit the issues, things like cheap sensors, Internet of Things, big data, data analytics, uh, deep learning, and whether or not those range of things are likely to have an even bigger impact on the social issues you've discussed than pure robotics? Yes, <laughs> they're all very important. Uh, it's as I said at the very start of my remarks. It's hard to talk about robotics and automation in uh, in a kind of vacuum because there are all these other fields that are progressing rapidly. Uh, I'd invite you to visit my magazine, The New Atlantis, uh, which you can find online. Here I am, my editorial prerogative, thenewatlantis.com. Uh, uh, and uh, you may find articles uh, related to some of these kinds of things. But yes, I mean, uh, everything that you're talking about, um, you know, our algorithmic future, the Internet of Things, uh, machine learning, deep learning, all of these things, uh, uh, not to mention some of the other transformations in medical technology that Marianne was alluding to, they're going to have profound implications for uh, our society and for cultural life in general. And it's uh, it's always worth thinking and talking more about them. Gentleman in front. Ken Dillon, Ciencia Press. If we listen to the current uh, political debate during the campaign, 
uh, there's a sense from some candidates that a good solution to the problems of unemployment or whatever jobs in the United States would be to set up tariff barriers. And if we would have such tariff barriers uh, uh, erected, uh, there would still be a possibility that the factories uh, that had the workers who were being protected by the by the uh, barriers uh, would then be automated. So we would be protecting our robots. Right. Now, if we're protecting our robots, does that make sense? Should we want to protect our robots with with a tariff? Well, let me jump in. As an economist, I uh, I don't agree with tariffs at all. Um, uh, if you go back to what uh, Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations, he said, if a country can produce something better than we ourselves, better to buy it of them with some product of our own industry in which we have a competitive advantage. You know, that's what it is. I mean, every country has got a competitive advantage, as the lady indicated from the Philippines. You know, they have a big demographic edge on the positive side, a lot of workers that can fill needs. Uh, and uh, do so much cheaper than, than we can. Um, you know, every country has those advantages, and I think that's what you need to exploit, and that's better for mankind in general. It keeps prices down. It keeps competition up. Tariffs are bad. I, I, you know, if you go back to the Depression, that's what really created it. It was the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act when the, uh, uh, the, um, the warriors of, of World War I came back and joined the field of, of agriculture and industry instead of uh, fighting in the fields of uh, Normandy. Uh, and we re-erected barriers then. Everybody else did as well. Uh, but I think, as Trump said, we, we need to have an even playing field. And whether that really ultimately occurs or not, it's going to hurt those, those players that don't ultimately. Maybe not in the short run, but ultimately it'll hurt. 